Welcome to NVC Life. I'm Rochelle Lamb, veteran NVC trainer and relationship coach, helping listeners navigate interpersonal conflict and ground more deeply into relational living. Greetings, fellow humans. In today's episode, I have the privilege of introducing you to renowned storyteller and mythologist, Dr. Martin Shaw. Dr. Shaw was born and raised in England. He's the author of 17 books, including A Branch from the Lightning Tree, Ecstatic Myth, and the Grace of Wildness, Snowy Tower, Parsifal, and the Wet Black Branch of Language, and Scatterlings Getting Claimed in the Age of Amnesia. Each book showcases Shaw's unique ability to weave together ancient wisdom, poetic language, and a deep understanding of the human psyche. Eric Utney, founder of the Utney Reader, says of Martin, Martin Shaw is a conjurer, a 13th century troubadour dropped in our midst. He breathes into his characters a beating pulse, agile speech, and bedazzling wit. Catch him any way you can. Shaw recently completed a two-week tour across Canada, and I had the great pleasure of spending time with him at his final stop in Victoria, B.C. before his return to the U.K. I asked Martin if he would be willing to respond to a couple of questions for my podcast, which he so graciously agreed to. Here is a recording of our conversation. Here's what I've been wondering about. I don't know what it's like in the UK, but here in North America, in the field of counseling and psychology, the word trauma is showing up all the time. And I wonder what that's a feature of in terms of uh, storytelling. I have my own theory that because psychology is the new religion, as I understand has been said before, that something has dropped out and there's no, there's no soul to be found. And not only that, it's, it's assumed in many ways that people should be living a life that looks a certain way. It's a cookie cutter life where people are, are happy all the time, or at least most of the time. And I just wondered, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever asked you about that before, but to me, story is missing hugely or people's proper understanding of it. I just wondered what Martin Shaw has to say about that. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, within that, there's sort of two or three different areas that I'll circle around. Firstly, you're right, you know, the, the language of sort of, of trauma is everywhere now and and certainly for a younger generation it's literally the oxygen they're they're breathing you know and that creates a certain narrative that really does create a certain narrative it creates a way of of looking at the world and it's it's really disturbing Mm -hmm. it's truly disturbing uh it's not it's not as if you know, we don't go through dreadful things. It's not as if it's not a good idea to talk about it. Of course, it's a good idea. I say that as a parent, you know, uh, and at the same time, at the same time, there's, um, you know, the narrative, the overarching narrative becomes one of sort of endless slights and injustices. And 
how on earth do we have a degree of self-reliance if we are continually uh, assuming that our boundaries have been violated, trashed and the rest of it, as if we all agreed somewhere mm -hmm. how life was going to go and how we were going to treat each other. I mean, obviously, countries and governments try and do that, but life is a contact sport. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's a mosh pit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and And the business, I think, of getting older is how do you turn the mosh pit into a flamenco dance. I think that's what has to go on over the, the decades. Both have their charm, but, but they're a bit different. Yeah. Um, so coming back to the notion of the religion of the religion of psychology, I, I would I'd agree with that. And then you have to think about, well, what does psychology do to a, a narrative? What does it do to a personal story? When psychology is effective, and I'm a fan of certain types of psychology, it reduces the heat on an issue. You know, there's two people sitting there. They can go no further. They're, they're at an impasse. They have huge floods of feeling bursting through them that they they really, it seems as if they can't control it or decipher it. Well, a good psychologist can reduce the heat. You know, it's like a kettle that's, that's whistling and they can just turn the heat down. And through careful questioning and a good degree of listening, the whole situation reduces some of its charge, becomes smaller, and in the smallness becomes more manageable. And I've, I've seen this, and, and I really know when the rubber hits the road, this can be a good thing. However, that is absolutely not what mythology does. Mythology plays a, a different move. Uh, mythology is when you take someone, you know, someone comes to you and says, this is the issue, and you listen, and if you're a good storyteller, you'll hear that hanging on the wingtip of their seemingly very, very personal story is something that's not, is something like a story like the Six Swans, or it could be the Earth Gnome, it could be hundreds of different stories. And you start to tell them that tale. Now, what happens is their personal issue becomes inflamed, not reduced. And suddenly they see it, they move, and this is, this is a very precise analogy I'm going to use. Some people might not follow it, but it's worth saying. In poetry, there's many different types, but mm. there's two types. One is called lyric and one is called epic. Now, lyric poetry is much more popular these days and it has, it's very confessional. There's lots of eyes in it. I like lyric poetry. A lot of the romantics are lyric po poetry. It's personal, it draws you in, it's intimate. But epic poetry is different. Epic poetry is not the small confessional I. It's the vast kind of we, uh, but not we in this kind of community fixated way that we have these days. It's if there is a community that epic poetry is referring to, it has it has toucans in it and weather patterns and the ghosts of your dead and irritable Irish people throwing potatoes at you and all sorts of stuff going on. It's bigger. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. We live in a lyric orientated culture, but we need the epic back. Uh, I go to a, I go to a church, mm -hmm. go to an Eastern Orthodox church. Not once when I come in, do they ask me how I'm feeling? Mm. Not once really is there any, if there's a sermon, it's five minutes long. And if it's any longer than that, it's regarded as vanity. We have a sung theology. The whole thing is sung. In fact, a divine liturgy, and believe it or not, this is circling around your question. I'm just on a mm -hmm. walk. A divine liturgy in the Orthodox community 
if you really slow it, if you really slow it down, it's a form of dance. It's actually a dance in which you open doorways that take you back past even Bethlehem, right to the beginning of things. Uh, a lot of it is in languages you may not understand. It could be in Slavonic, it could be in Greek. Uh, no one's giving you a back rub. There's no talk of donuts and coffee. There's no worship band. There's no guitars. There's, there's very little to hold on to. Mm. And in that, you enter something vast. You enter something bigger. And ironically, a different type of healing occurs. Mm. In, in my world, it is it is impolite to speak of things too directly. You have to circle around them. And you will know from your own experience in indigenous culture, that's usually the case. Yeah. It's why the first thing my students ever do with each other is I say, find 12 secret names for something you love, mm. but don't just keep looking at it from one position. All of these things, in my opinion, the move from lyric to epic, from... Uh, from you know confessional to something bigger and in a and in a way you know what underpins all of that is the notion of service if if the service code doesn't kick in we tend to end up um you know neurotic people you know stretched on the rack of the existential and that's a horrific place to be mm. and then we that's too frightening we don't have the tools to unpack it so we think well you know netflix and porn and booze is going to have to do it's just going to have to do. Mm. Um, so coming back again, coming back to the words, what are the words that are healthy to use? Whilst I think, as I said, it's great to sit down and say, I'm suffering, I'm in trouble, I need help. On the other hand, that can create, you can, you can, you can kind of circle in on yourself in a way that's not helpful. Now, the Celts had a completely different approach but they had a different approach to everything. When they would be raising a child, there'd be two things they'd be doing with that kid. One is giving them what I call a word hoard, which is actually an Anglo-Saxon phrase, a word hoard of stories. Mm. And the stories are like a cloak that you wrap that person in, which helps them understand the, understand the conditions of their own life, but in this bigger, more epic way. Because when people are at their most desperate, it's when they feel they've fallen out of a story. It's an awful feeling. Mm -hmm. So first of all, you're wrapped in the swan feather cloak of story. Secondly, you are orientated to a particular location, the land. It could be a very small acreage. It could be a tree. It could be a river. But in some way, you know this very old secret that a lot of our soul lives outside of our body. It's not all here in this kind of European chest that mm. we're gesturing towards. That's the point of things like wilderness vigils and vision quests. It bursts you out. Mm. Um, now, what that does, what that does is it means you can read your own nature in a thunderstorm. It means you can receive information by watching what plants grow in a drought you are continually reading and being fed by a connected cosmology. And words are how that used to work. Words are, are, are very much how we reach out and touch the world. Uh, often when I'm at workshops, people at some point will say, well, it's just words. And I think, oh, mm. just words. Let's see what words can do. 
yeah. Hitler knew what words can do, and that went south pretty quickly, didn't it? Yeah. They have tremendous power. So I suppose um, when we think of the religion of, of psychology, the problem for me is, do you remember the old image in Greek myth of Narcissus? You're caught in the gaze of yourself. Yeah. The problem with the screen culture we have now is that our, our visionary elements is all it's all directed about half a foot ahead of us it's it's not on the periphery which is where the kalahari bushman would be hanging out and the druids would be hanging out the action is always on the edge of things that's where it always happens when there's a crisis in a story the action comes from the edge but now we are we're fixated on something that's just in front of us and is designed through algorithms to keep feeding us what we already think we know Mm. And so we end up praying to ourselves. Mm. Uh, it's grotesque. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. Well, I, yeah. I, you know, it, I, it may or may not quite, mm. quite go where. I mean, it's an interesting. A friend of mine was saying. He said. He said, wokeness. Is like a form of Christianity with no forgiveness. Mm. You know, that, yeah. that element is not in it. Yeah. And young people, if young folks are growing up with, you know, there's elements of wokeness that are tremendously important. Mm. You know, the last should be first in a way. It's like the Sermon on the Mount. But when you take the religious, when you take the spiritual dimensions out, when you take the vertical out and you're just using this uh, in the way that some people are using it now, um it it's a dreadful kind of uh misuse of something yeah mm -hmm. you know and I, and also people ask me they say you know you woke and i said well no i'm dreaming mm. you know that's what i do mm. i i've been saying it over the last couple of nights i'm just yeah. been finished touring i've been saying look um dreaming is a kind of underground underworld thinking it mm. is thinking mm. but it's an uncorralled dimension and we need dreamers as much as we need, you know, above board uh, speculators. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. I remember once you talking about heartbreak and the way you spoke about it was you brought the rest of the world in. You spoke about, I, I can't remember, a hundred birds mm -hmm. coming from someone's heart, breaking free. I don't know. Does that mm. ring a bell? No, I can't remember. Okay, but, but, but it's it. just that you are bringing in this imagery which to me is just so much more powerful and enlivening than sitting with someone and saying, oh, I hear that you have a broken heart and, and you're really looking for some kind of healing and that's just so stagnant and has yeah. no life in it no. whatsoever. No. People, uh, people these days are very sniffy about metaphor and they regard it as a, some people regard it as a rather sort of degraded art form, but that's, that is really nonsense. Yeah. And you only have to think about it for five minutes and realize, you know, you take you take metaphors away. You've got no Pablo Neruda. Mm. You've got no Sylvia Plath. You've got no Ted Hughes. You've got no WB Yeats. You've got uh, no Mary Oliver. It goes on and on and on and on and on. And these are the people that show us the deeper tributaries of our lives. And as, as soon as we trade the facts of the matter for the story of the matter, we've lost. Yeah. And what we have now, uh, I've been saying recently that the devil has scorched my retinas. I feel like I, my, my, my eyes are damaged yeah. by what I've consumed, 
even to the level of doom, you know, this phrase doom scrolling. Mm. And we all end up doing it because <laughs> yeah. because now this this dastardly machine, this contortion in front of us is arriving and it's showing us these little reels of, you know, in my case, I have a fondness for small little Boston Terriers. Now there's millions of these little buggers <laughs> showing up yeah. or parakeets. And I and all, all my friends are we're all trying to figure out how do we cope with technology? Do we? Do we damn it to hell? Or on the other hand, it's a way I stay in touch with my daughter when I'm thousands of miles away. And without doubt, it regulates my anxiety because in a strange, I, I have connective tissue to her. But one way or another, if we're going to cope with what is rushing towards us, whether we are Ojibwe, whether we are Lakota, whether we are Irish, whether we are Scots, one way or another, as a culture, as cultures, plural, we have to deal with what I call the goddess of limit. Mm. Because until we understand limit, until we are not ridden ragged by our passions, we're going to be in trouble. We'll just be subsumed by it. Uh, that was an interesting thing for me about lockdown. Lockdown gave me the time actually in space to look at certain things that I had just charged through me my whole life and I'd never questioned and think, you know, that that's actually, this could be a moment where I could just take a couple of steps back. I mean, the phrase that I was using just then, um, there's a difference in myth between desire, desire and longing. And the modernity is actually very, very good at desire these days. It says you want something, you can have it. And you yeah. can have it with uh, extra cream mm -hmm. and more chocolate and more carbs. And here you go. You like that? I thought you would. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a little lie down, then you're going to come back. But, but, but in sort of, you know, for example, you know, Sufi culture or Christian or other, desire is actually something to be it's something to be looked at with curiosity, but longing is different. Now, there's a word, uh, I'm sure some of your listeners will know this word, hiraith, we hear it, you know, this Welsh, almost untranslatable phrase. It's a longing. And many folks in North America have it somehow, and it understandably is tied up probably with their house of origin, mm. you know, whether that's Scandinavia or Africa, wherever it is. I also think Hiraith has a dimension to it that isn't actually not about any fixed place. Mm. It's about something so deep in the human soul. We, we, we don't really understand it, but we know it's there. Uh, and that, the Hiraith and the longing, that is a thing, I think, that to some degree can protect you against the fabrications of the passions that come to us through screens. You know, we're going quite deep here, but but that's what I would suggest is one way or another limit discipline. I've always said discipline is the dance partner of wildness. People say to me, it happens frequently. I, I meet many people very much in touch with their wild selves. And I say, well, it's you think you're in touch with your wild self. You're not. You're in touch with your feral self oh. feral is not yeah. wild. You know, feral is is the is uh, the. Uh, you know, it's the version, it, you know, when you see a fox in a city and you think, oh, buddy, mm. shouldn't be here. And mm -hmm. you're in the bins and they're, they're, you know, scuffling through the heroin needles and things like that. It's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an aspiration, but it's, you're not in the presence of the real thing. But people will say to me, how is it? 
you know, I'm just as talented as you. Why haven't I written 17 books? And I said, because you haven't, you haven't fixed your wagon to the horses of discipline. Oh. That's a metaphor that I've never thought before. No. I'm going to keep with that. Yeah. You haven't done that. You're, you're just going round and round and round and round. You're spinning on the old hamster wheel of ecstatic states and mm. nothing gets built. Because uh, yeah. you've got to be, you know, if you're going to be like Noah and you're going to build a boat, you have to understand two by four. You have to understand not to have too many leaks. I've said this one thing through the tour eternally. This phrase, it's a wonderful phrase, vas bene clausum. It's from medieval alchemy, and it means the well-sealed vessel. And too much of us, I think, have given too much leverage to beloved Leonard Cohen when he says the cracks let in the light. Well, they also let in the water and things just mm. drown. Mm. And so there comes a limit to that. And I think getting older, uh, I'm very different in my 50s to who I was in my 30s. And God willing, I live into my 70s and beyond. I'll be very different again. You know, I'll be in movement. But... But discipline, a degree of sobriety, and not being just subsumed by my own passions are becoming more and more important. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Yeah. Lovely to see you again, Michelle. Ole. 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 <laughs> yeah. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Martin as much as I did, and that you're inspired to learn more about him and his beautiful work. You can find Martin at drmartinshaw.com as well as at schoolofmyth.com, which is the website for his school, West Country School of Myth, located in Dartmoor in the far west of the UK. I will include these links in the show notes. I will end this episode with a quote from Martin Shaw. By going deeper into myth, I go deeper into love. And when I go deeper into love, innately, I find morality. I locate a true north in my own heart. Thank you for tuning into NBC Life. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. For free resources or to book a private session with me, head over to rochellelam.com. Until the next time, stay sane, grateful, and generous.